1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And as you're turning there, I would encourage you, those of you who are able, to go ahead and rise once again for the reading of God's holy word, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are going to read only a section of Scripture that we, that I will be preaching from now, beginning in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans and another for animals, another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the, body, the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory." So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. A second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. Many of you are familiar with the name Joni Erickson Tata, faithful sister, an author, Christian speaker. Often she teaches most often on God's grace and His providence through personal suffering. As many of you already know, Joni is a quadriplegic. She can't use her legs, she can't use her arms, she is able to speak. She even paints with a paintbrush from her mouth. Pretty amazing. One of the things that Joni said is when people ask her, what are you going to do when you get to heaven? He's, this is what she said, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. Well, that's a great statement. Boy, it sure would be sentimentally compelling, but where does Joni get off? Who's to say whether or not in the new heavens and the new earth, whether we're going to have legs and will we even have knees to drop on in the first place? Now, many of you might be saying, well, that's a silly question, but you realize that's the exact question that's being asked by some in the Corinthian church, and Paul is now correcting it. You may remember from our time together this last week that there were some in the church that were not denying the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they were denying the future bodily resurrection of believers. 
And the Apostle Paul systematically, as we saw last week, makes the argument that if you deny the future resurrection of believers, that bodily resurrection when Christ returns, then by implication, you deny Christ's resurrection and you deny the very gospel that you proclaim to believe. So theology matters. It has implications for our life, not just practically in the here and now, not merely on Monday, but for eternity. And so Paul is dealing it with a great deal of gravity. And the question that he's asking, it opens up right there. You see it in verse 35 is this, how are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? Will there be legs and will there be knees? Now, we notice at the beginning of verse 36 that, that the apostle knows that these aren't sincere questions. And so he responds, you foolish person. He knows that what we have here are not sincere questions from sincere believers inquiring about the way things will be when Christ returns, but these are scoffers, and so their questions might be asked something like this. Well, why don't you tell us, Paul, how the dead are raised? Why don't you go ahead and tell us, Paul, what kind of body will come? Of course, underneath it all is this idea that what Paul is teaching is utterly ridiculous. This idea of a future bodily resurrection, that's laughable. It might be the same kind of scoffers that Peter wrote about in 2 Peter 3, 4. Where is the promise of His coming? Scoffers always scoff at the future promises of God's grace in Christ, that there would be such thing as a heaven, there would be such thing as, as a future resurrection, there would be such thing as Christ's return and His judging of the living and the dead. And so what Paul's going to argue over the course of the next handful of verses is really, is really this, that in verses 35 and 36, only fools scoff at a future resurrection. Only fools scoff at a future resurrection because, verses 36 to 44, because because God's world proves it, and beginning in verse 45 to the end of our passage, God's Word promises it. Only fools scoff at a future resurrection because God's Word proves it, and God's Word promises it. Follow along with me. Let's see if we can stick with Paul's logic beginning there in verse 36. He has already called out with somewhat harsh but pastoral language the scoffer who had questioned the future resurrection from the dead. And he immediately now wants to turn the attention of those who are reading this letter to one of two books. There are some who argue that God has revealed Himself in two books. He's revealed Himself on the one hand in the book of nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. All about who He is, His invisible attributes and power are evident in what He has made, Romans 1. So He reveals Himself in the book of nature, but He reveals Himself even more clearly about who He is, what He's like, and what His will is unto salvation in His Word that He speaks to us. Two books, the book of nature and the book of Scripture of God's world and God's Word, and we see the two here spoken of in our passage. And he's going to begin there in verse 36 by arguing from God's world that future bodily resurrection 
is not only true, but it's perfectly reasonable. What he's going to say is, when we look around at the creation around us, it is giving a testimony all the time to life coming from death. And this shouldn't surprise you whatsoever. In fact, he begins with the first analogy there in verse 36, you see. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. This is the first of two analogies that he's going to give us in this opening paragraph. He's going to give us the analogy, first of all, of a seed. He wants us to consider seeds. And then in verses 39 and 41, he's going to want us to consider bodies. So he says here, beginning in verse 36 and 37, I want you to consider seeds. That what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Here's the main point of those handful of verses, that just like seeds, our dead bodies will sprout up to new life in the form that God ordains. Just like seeds that we see here, when we see in our own gardens, that we plant Something happens under the surface without us knowing and without our own effort and power, it produces life where once there seemed only to be death. That just like seeds, our dead bodies will sprout up to new life in the form that God Himself has purposed and planned. He's going to say in the same way that there is an organic connection between the seed and its body, there is a similar connection then between our bodies when we die and our bodies when we're raised. Notice what he says there in verse 37. He says that each seed sprouts its own kind of body to each kind of seed. I think what Paul's doing there is just giving a nod back to Genesis chapter 1. Remember when he creates reproducing creatures of animals and birds that each one reproduces according to its kind, that dogs produce dogs, cats produce cats, emus produce emus, and so on and so forth. And so when human bodies then are sown like seed in death, what he's arguing is that they're not going to sprout forth dog bodies, and they're not going to sprout forth cat bodies, and it's not going to sprout forth an emu body. For all of you who are devastated, really hoping to be an emu one day in the new creation, Paul says, I've got bad news for you, because God is going to raise up human bodies from human bodies. That's what the resurrection is going to be like. But then he wants to say, even though there's this continuity, this organic connection between the body that is sown and the body that will be raised, there's also a discontinuity. There's going to be a difference between the two of them. That even though the body that sprouts will be the same kind of body that's sown, it's going to be significantly different. And that's the argument that he's making from the second analogy beginning there in verse 39. For, he says, he's picking up the argument of each kind of seed, its own body. He said, let's think about bodies. We've already thought about seeds. It's indisputable that life comes from death in seeds, and that every seed gives birth to the kind of life that it has in it, just as God has ordained. But now in verse 39, for all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, and there are the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory for the stars, for star differs from star in 
glory. Paul is going to make a three-step argument. I want you to follow along with Paul. And he's building on what he just said in verse 38. Each kind has its own body, beginning in verse 39. Notice there, he's arguing that God gives different kinds of bodies. And here he's contrasting humans with animals. Humans have bodies and different kinds of animals have different kinds of bodies. But then he advances the argument a little bit more in verse 40. Not only does God give different kinds of bodies, but He also gives different kinds of bodies different kinds of glory. You see that there in verse 40. There's heavenly bodies and then there's earthly bodies. Those bodies which are bright and shine that, that when the sun raises or the, or the stars are bright at night, we walk outside and we just marvel at it. And then there's heavenly bodies that seem to be slightly more dim, slightly more dim in their glory. Different bodies have different kinds of glory, verse 40. And he's comparing the heavenly versus the earthly bodies. But then in verse 41, here's where his argument ultimately comes to a head. But God also, and this is what's going to be important for us, but God also gives the same kind of bodies different kinds of glory. You see what he says there? Now he's comparing heavenly bodies with heavenly bodies. And among these bodies, which are the same in kind, some have more glory than the others. The sun is more glorious than the moon, and, and the moon may or may not be more glorious than the stars, and, and some stars are more glorious than other stars in glory. What is he arguing for? What he's saying is that you and I, when our bodies die and go into the ground, just like a seed is sown, that dead body is going to sprout forth, according to God's command, purpose, and plan, a new body of the same kind, but of a different glory. It's going to be continuity. You're not going to be a dog, cat, or emu. You're going to be a human, just like you are now, only you're going to be altogether radiant with the glory of Christ. It's going to be altogether different. So you see the argument that he's making. He's just looking at it and going, listen, I'm just saying to you what all of you already know. I'm telling you what you already know about seeds and sowing, and now I'm telling you what you already know, that humans are, have different kinds of bodies than emus, and I'm telling you what you already know, that the sun is more glorious in its presentation than a tree or a flashlight, perhaps, and that... There are some who are the same kinds of bodies, consider heavenly bodies, that have different kinds of glory. Well, you realize how he's advancing his argument now, that if you and I are going to have the same kind of body, then how are we to think about, this is the question, what kind of body will the resurrection come? It'll be the same kind of body, but it's going to have a different kind of glory. You see his argument? That's how he's slowly working his way through it. If you're hanging with it, good job, because this is a tight bit of logic for the Apostle Paul, and I want to make sure that we get it. But then beginning in verse 42, he's going to draw his conclusion. The conclusion that he has from the argument that he's made from nature, and it's really this. If I were to put it in a single sentence, it's this. The kind of body that is sown is the same kind of body that's raised, but the body that's raised has more glory than the body that is sown. I'll say it again. The kind of body that is sown is the same kind of body that is raised. But the body that is raised has more glory than the body that is sown. 
That is the conclusion of Paul's argument, and this is what he says. So it is, verse 42, with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. Sown in weakness, but raised in power. Sown a natural body, and yet raised a spiritual body. Notice all of the kind of parallels that he's making here. He says, first of all, when you and I die and our bodies go into the ground, our bodies are sown perishable, literally corruptible. What does that mean that they're corruptible? The Bible teaches that in Adam, sin and death spread to all men, and therefore all men have sinned. That death is the consequence of sin, and because of sin, all of God's good creation has been corrupted by sin and is subject to death. So when he says, he writes here that we are sown perishable, or we are sown corruptible, what he's saying is that we are sown as those who are subject, due to sin, to death and decay. It's why the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, I think it is, that our bodies are just jars of clay. Later on, verse 16, he says, our outer self is wasting away. Any of y'all feel like that? That's how I feel. I don't feel the same way in my 40s that I felt in my 20s. My body's acting in a way that starts pulling hair from the top of my head and starts shooting it out of my nose. That didn't happen when I was in my 20s. Now I go into the bathroom in the morning and I look at myself and no matter how many times I trim, I look like a party favor. It didn't happen when I was 25, but it happens now when I'm 45. When I step off of a curb and I land that foot, there's things jiggling that didn't used to jiggle. Gravity is having a greater effect on my body than it once did. And all of this is a reminder, even though we joke about it, and all of you can relate to it in one way or the other, it's all a reminder to us that our days are numbered. That's the why the Lord instructs us in His Word to number our days. And so every day we have reminders, even in our own bodies, that we are subject to death and decay, and the ultimate reason for that is sin. That sin has corrupted God's glorious creation. But notice, even though you and I are sown perishable, those subject to death and decay because of sin, we are raised, the Apostle Paul says, imperishable. That the very corruption of death due to sin is gone in that day. Amen? 2 Timothy 2, 8 to 10, this is what Paul writes, that God's purpose of grace from eternity past was manifested in the appearing of His Son as the man Jesus Christ, quote, who abolished death and brought life and immortality, same word, imperishability. I guess immortality is just a little bit more pithy. Same word, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is the hope of resurrection, that the Lord Jesus Christ in bringing life and immortality, has abolished death. He has ended the corruptibility of our, of our bodies in such a way that when we are raised, we are raised in a far more glorious form, and that glorious form is no longer touched by the corruption of sin. And so I wonder in that day, what will our bodies be like? No longer hindered by the corruption of sin in the world. I wonder if I'm going to be able to grow a beard one day. Wouldn't that be great? I really hope that maybe my voice even drops another octave. I would love that. That'd be great. I don't know if that's really what's going to happen. And for all of you scoffing bearded men, 
Maybe the glory of a man's face will be just like this one day, and all of us follically challenged men will be vindicated in that day. Because really, all bearded men are just men without beards with beards. Whatever that day will look like, whatever that day will be like, it means that you and I, that you and I will no longer be hindered whatsoever by the corruption of sin in our own bodies. We will no longer be subject to death and decay. We will be raised imperishable. But notice what he says next. Beginning of verse 43, he says, not only are we raised imperishable, but what is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. That idea of dishonor is the disgrace and the shame that comes because of death due to sin. That you and I, because of death, are not what we were created to be. You and I were created to reign with Christ forever, and sin and death has corrupted all of that. What was once purposed for honor is now dishonored. There is disgrace and shame and death. Even though we come together at funerals and we honor those whom we love who've passed away, the reality of every funeral is that death is our great dishonor because of sin and that we need the hope of Christ. We need the hope, he says in verse 43, that even if we are sown in dishonor, we will be raised in glory. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that lowly body, to be like His glorious body. Colossians 3, 4, that when Christ, your life, appears, you will appear with Him in glory. Isn't that amazing? No more disgrace. No more shame of death. No more disintegrating, drooping bodies. No, we share in the very glory of Christ in that day. But then he keeps going in the second half of verse 43. He says, sown in weakness, but raised in power. That, that we are weak. When he says that, it means that we are oftentimes ineffectual and frail. Remember what the, what the prophet Isaiah says. He says, even youths faint and grow weary, and even young men fall exhausted. What does he mean by that? He's saying, even when we look around and we see the strongest of the strongest among us, those who are most full of life and vitality, even they faint, even they grow weary, even they fall exhausted, and so is life in this cursed world. Every single one of us knows what that's like. My own wife, off and on for a number of years, has struggled with insomnia. Some of you have struggled with similar things or with other things that have been hindrances in your body and through your body to living the kind of life in the full that you want to do. It's ineffectual and frail. And the good news of the gospel, the good news of what he's saying here is that for someone like Kathy, the good news of the resurrection is not that one day she's going to get a good night's sleep. It's that one day she's not going to need sleep at all because she's no longer going to need that kind of rest. Her body's no longer going to be frail. Her body, like ours, is no longer going to be ineffectual. She's not going to have to refuel in that way. Consider what 
the apostle writes in Romans 5. When was it that Christ died for us? While we were weak, ineffectual, to bring about the kind of lives that would be pleasing to Him unto salvation, we needed a mediator. While we were yet weak and weary and frail and exhausted from the fact of our own sin and our own corruption, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. And that's good news. Because when we are one day raised in power, our bodies will be forever revived with all of the vitality necessary to love and serve and praise and enjoy God forever. I don't know if any of you have heard the name Dr. Gerstner. Dr. Gerstner was, uh, was a faithful brother, long since passed away, uh, or fallen asleep, rather. Um, and he was the man that trained and discipled R.C. Sproul. And, on, and when he was in his final days, he was asked what it was that he was looking forward to, and this is what Dr. Gerstner said. He said, I look forward to loving and worshiping God unhindered by sin. How many of you know down in the very marrow of your bones what it feels like to be hindered by sin? Ugh, I did it again. Why won't that stubborn sin go away? Why do I have to keep battling against it? Why does my flesh continue to war against what my spirit desires? Every single one of you know that battle. And on the one hand, we praise God because the very fact that it is a battle in you is proof that the Spirit is at work in you. If it weren't, it wouldn't be a battle. You'd be happy to give yourself over to it. But on the other hand, there is a longing and a groaning, a, a kind of, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel kind of groaning that we have. Oh, I just want one day to love and worship God unhindered, by sin. Amen. And that's what he's saying. There is coming a day where we will be sown in weakness, but we will be raised in power. Finally, he says, we are sown a natural body, but we are raised a spiritual body. You see that there, verse 44? He's going to spend the rest of the paragraph making an argument from Scripture, not from God's world, but from God's Word on Verse 44, so here's what he says. It is sown a natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The man, the second man, is from Heaven. Now, you notice he's bringing in the first Adam and the second Adam. That first man ever created, Adam, and the second and the ultimate man, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the Bible is really a story of two Adams, a first Adam and an ultimate second Adam to which the first Adam was a type, pointing, was a pattern of one yet to come, Paul says in Romans chapter 5. And all people who have ever been created hang on a hook, as it were, on the belts of one or the other Adam, either on the first Adam or the second. 
either in Adam and as a result enslaved to sin and death, or in Christ, freed from sin and death, and raised in Him to eternal life. There is no third way. Your neighbors, your family members, the people sitting in this room right now are either in the first Adam or they are in the second Adam, one being a representative head for all of humanity and the other being a representative head for all of the new humanity. And so the big question of the Bible, the big question of 1 Corinthians 15 is which Adam do you identify yourself with, the first or the last? And that's going to be really important to our doctrine of the resurrection. And so he's already made the argument that scoffers are, are silly for rejecting a future resurrection because God's world reveals it and God's word promises it. Notice what he does beginning in verse 45. He begins with a scriptural principle. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 6. And then from that, he, he teases out a logical or a necessary inference that if it's the case that the first Adam became natural and that Adam is the type of another Adam yet to come, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, then it must necessarily be the case that the last Adam became spiritual. And if that's the case, then two things follow. Verse 46, he's going to make an argument of bodily order, not bodily odor, bodily order. And then in verse 47, of bodily kind. That if it's the case that the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, that is not to say that he's a disembodied spirit somewhere, or that he and the Holy Spirit merged into one single person, but rather he becomes the source of resurrection life through the power of the Spirit in his kingdom. That the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom that is governed and empowered by his Holy Spirit. That's what it means here. So in the same way that the first Adam brought death, the second Adam brings life through the Spirit. Verse 46, he's going to say, but there's an order to it all. You might think that because the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, that He comes first, and that the first Adam comes second, but no, we're thinking about His mediating work, His incarnation. So verse 46, it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, which comes first. Well, the first Adam comes first, His body comes first, and then the last Adam, the second Adam comes, the spiritual. And then from that bodily order, he's going to argue in verse 47 of a bodily kind, whereas the first Adam was earthly, that is, he was a man of the dust, from dust he was created, and to dust he will return. The second man, he says, is from heaven. Now, what he's saying here is not ultimately talking about where they're from, like a location, like I am from Bedford, Texas. What he's saying is he's talking about the nature of their bodies, what's characteristic of their bodies, of Adam, the one who returned to dust, and of the second Adam that has been raised and glorified in the power of the Holy Spirit by his Father. And this is what he says, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. And as I already mentioned, that should recall to you that that language in Genesis, as many of you have heard in many, many uh, funerals and burials in your own life, and to dust he will return. That to think about this Adam is to think about one who is sown perishable, one who is sown in dishonor, one who is sown in weakness, and one who is sown in a natural body. 
And he's being compared then to the risen and reigning Jesus Christ, who was raised, imperishable, glorious, powerful, and spiritual. And so here's ultimately what he's arguing. Remember, at the end of his argument, verse 41, he says, when we're considering the same kinds of things, some have more glory than the others. The first Adam had a body. The second Adam had a body that was like the first Adam in his incarnation. It was subject to death and decay. But upon his resurrection, the body of the second Adam was better than the body of the first Adam because the body of the second Adam has been raised glorious and incorruptible, whereas the body of the first Adam merely went back to the dust. Same kinds, different glories. And so the conclusion then is in verse 48 and 49. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That even though every person, you and I, every person in this room and every person who has ever lived has borne Adam's earthly image, in a sense from dust we come because we're in Adam, and to dust we will return. We will face the corruption and the shame of death in this life. And yet every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will also one day bear Christ's heavenly image. And the language of image here is synonymous with the language of glory, as we've seen all throughout the passage. It's to say, in the same way that you share Adam's glory, which is a dusty glory, you're going to share in Christ's glory, which is a glorious heavenly glory. Same kinds different glories. And so when you and I, right, this is proven from God's world and it's promised by God's word that when you and I die and go into the ground, we sow Adam's perishable, dishonorable, weak, and natural glory. But on the day of the Lord when Christ returns, all of us who have hoped in him alone of his death and his resurrection we will be raised in that day with the body that God, according to his purpose and plan, has chosen for us, a body that matches the body of our risen and reigning Savior, and it will be imperishable, it will be glorious, it will be powerful, and it will be spiritual. So to quote Paul from, from chapter 6, or to paraphrase him, your body matters. So what's at stake? What is at stake then in Paul's argument? Number one, you and I can take it to the bank that just as the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ was raised bodily in glory, we will be raised bodily in glory. And that is good news. Just as Christ was raised, we will be raised. Secondly, why is that good news? It's because everything in this life can be destroyed by rust, eaten by moths, stolen by thieves. It can be destroyed, it can fade, and it can be taken from you. Everything, including your own health and your own body, can be robbed from you in this life. And so it's not coincidental then, in the very next chapter, or in the very next paragraph, that Matthew writes the Lord Jesus teaching, then don't be anxious. You realize the promise of a future bodily resurrection is the greatest anecdote to creaturely anxiety. 
We live in a world where we know what we have won't last, including our bodies. We know that the, that the wealth that we store up for ourselves for the sake of our own security can be taken away at any minute, and that makes us anxious at times, doesn't it? Anxious about what it will look like if we run out of money. Anxious about what it looks like if we die and leave behind a wife or a husband or children. Anxious about what it might look like if we were to, to lose our jobs or if, if we were to be in an accident, if we were to end up like Joni, a quadriplegic. There's all kinds of things in our lives that might lead us to be anxious, and there's a sense in which that anxiety is well-placed because that's the reality of the world that we live in because it's been corrupted by sin. And yet the hope of future bodily resurrection helps us to take that anxiety that comes from storing up all those things that can be destroyed or that will fade or that could be taken from us and putting our hope and resting in Christ alone for the hope of glory. It's to say these things may be taken away from me. I hope they don't, but if they are, that's okay. There's nothing that will be taken from me that will not one day be repaid. And so it helps the anxious heart to stop hoping in this world and to put its hope firmly on Christ alone. Thirdly, it reminds us that our bodies matter. Every single time when you and I come together on the Lord's Day to gather, it's important that you and I are here bodily. It's important that you and I sing with our real voices and our vocal cords. It's important that you and I pray together and amen together. It's important that we preach and hear God's word. It's important that we do all of those things. And if I were the devil, what I would want to do is make Christians believe that it's just as good to not gather bodily with the church, but rather to watch streaming services or podcasts or other things. And those things may be helpful but you realize that we are the kingdom of Christ. He is coming again. He's going to establish us in new bodies for a new creation, for a bodily existence to reign with Him forever. And, the way, and that begins now. That we are new creations. The old has passed away. The new has come. That work has already begun. Our bodies matter. And so when we come and we gather with the church, we do so as an embodied church looking forward to the hope of glory in which we have an embodied eternity. That while we gather now and we still confess our sin, there's going to come a day where we won't do that anymore. There's going to come a day where, where a preacher stands up, or there's a day now where a preacher stands up and calls us to repent and believe and exhorts us and correct us, but there's going to be a day that we don't have to do that. But even more than that, there's a reality in which you and I move toward one another in an embodied fashion, and that's what the church is. It's a foretaste of the kingdom to come. We are an embodied people. And if I wanted to split and divide a church, if I wanted to malnourish Christians, if I wanted to undermine assurance, then I would convince them that what they don't need is the bodily gathering of the church, that a screen is sufficient, that it's perfectly sufficient to have the majority of our Christian interactions over social media, where we shape our own worlds and our own realities and our own image rather than an embodied reality. I think this was one of the most challenging things in COVID just a handful of years ago, wasn't it? That when we walk around anywhere we go and everybody's wearing masks and covered up, it robs all of us to some degree of that embodied existence that we have with one another. 
And I don't mean to open up a can about its appropriateness or inappropriateness or wisdom or lack of wisdom. What I'm saying is that the reality of sin in our world and the corruption of our world undermines and undercuts the very embodied existence that God has created us for in community and where the Lord Jesus Christ is redeeming nature by His gospel is in His church. And so, it's important that you are here bodily. It's important that I'm here bodily. It's important that we show up with our bodies and our larynxes and our lungs and we sing and we pray and we hug and we shake hands and we talk and we encourage and we use our tongues to edify and to build up. That is what God has created and recreated us to do until He comes again. So don't buy the lie that the Christian life is somehow a virtual disembodied life. It's not. The future resurrection says otherwise, and so we want to lean into it. Fourthly and finally, this kind of future bodily resurrection is only promised to us because Christ was sown corruptible, because Christ was sown in shame, because Christ was sown in that very body of Adam, cursed by sin, so that he might be raised for our justification. As I said last week, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead is God's glorious, heavenly, cosmic amen to the sufficient work of His Son on a cross is the man Jesus, such that all those who come to the reality, the notion that we are by nature children of wrath, destined for the grave to be sown, perishable, and shameful because of sin, have a hope of eternal life. And if you're here, that is the good news of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ has died for our sins and been raised from the dead. And His bodily resurrection At the heart of the gospel is His bodily resurrection promises that death will not be able to touch you forever. That's really the heart of the gospel, that Christ, in defeating the devil, has defeated the very fear of death. And so if you're here and you're investigating Christian things and you are not yet a Christian, there are all kinds of things that I may be unsuccessful in persuading you of, but there is one thing that I know that you know for certain, and that is that you are going to die. There's going to come a day where you are going to be sown into the ground like a husk, just like the rest of us. What will be your hope in that day? That you just get absorbed molecularly into the, into the dark cosmos like some materialist? Or that there's actually a hope of life beyond death? of a resurrection life where you're no longer hindered by the reality of your own sin and your own frailty with no more fear and anxiety. All of that is offered to sinners like me and like you. It is offered fully and freely in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I implore you, consider creation, God's world, and consider God's word. It's all the proof that you need that God in His providence and power brings life from the dead.
And that life can be yours if you would rest in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone. Oh, I hope that you will. Let's pray.